Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 18 on May 14th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Dustin Duncan, who is the chairperson of the Family Grant Fund and the Children's Scholarship Program Committees for the Medevac Foundation International. Before I introduce my guest, I want to go over some feedback from episode 17, and cover some recent air medical transport news. I finally received a response from the RSS company regarding all my posts on Facebook being grouped together. This had to do with the change that Facebook made with the API, or Application Program Interface, and it does not appear that RSS Graffiti, who is the third-party company, is going to make any changes since the problem does not affect the majority of their users. The issue for Air Medical today is that there are several news and information posts throughout the day, and this new model does not work well with posts being grouped together. As I said the last couple of episodes, however, I am posting directly to Facebook instead of through Twitter, so there is no loss of information for those following Air Medical Today on Facebook. This is just some added steps for me, and now at least I know the problem. I did receive a number of feedback messages on Episode 17 on the Survivors Network for Air and Surface Medical Transport. First, I want to apologize that the show was two hours long, and actually, at one point, I was thinking that I would split the episode into two shows, but after going through the recording in detail, I thought it would destroy the flow of the interview. The feedback I received actually did not go into the length, but more into what amazing women that Krista, Megan, and Teresa are, and several were appreciative of the work that they have started. Of course, I agree completely, as I really enjoyed doing the interview and learning more about the history and background of the group. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file or note to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have any suggestions for future guests. As I have done in the past, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email me or call me if it is not. I am always on the lookout for all the Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook, so it is easier for others to find you. I cannot link Facebook group pages, and therefore, if you are thinking of putting your program on Facebook, do use a fan page rather than a group. 
One of the most important reasons is that you can obtain a unique URL or website address once you have 25 fans. This makes it much easier to provide someone your Facebook fan page and for them to find you. Contact me if you have any questions about this. As you probably all know, Facebook has been under tremendous amount of pressure for their continuous security changes and they're making individuals opt out rather than opt into these changes. I have not been personally happy with these changes as they are quite confusing and unfortunately they cause trust issues with the service, which I very much like. As of this podcast, the owners and staff of Facebook were having an emergency meeting to deal with the firestorm they have created on the internet with the latest changes in opening up Facebook to several outside websites. I hope that there will be solid action so that users will feel their personal information is protected. Through the Eero Podcast Network page on Facebook, which is at www.facebook.com, slash E-P-N-E-T-W-O-R-K and the Twitter account at twitter.com slash E-P-N-E-T-W-O-R-K. I post up news and information regarding social networking and general technology. So please become a fan and take a look if you are not already following. There have been several good posts on how to navigate the security menus on Facebook. The sponsorship page is up, and you can get to it by going to airmedtoday.com sponsorship.html or by following the link on the home page. I am looking for both corporate and individual sponsors and will be sending out information to companies and individuals in our community to solicit support. To continue all the work I am doing in bringing news and information and the podcast, I will need financial support, so if you can become a sponsor... Your company or name will be listed according to the level of support. I will also be featuring corporate sponsors in future podcasts. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. Since I did not publish the podcast last week due to attending my son Alex's graduation from James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, there is quite a bit of news, so I'm catching up from the last two weeks. In healthcare reform news, federal actuaries estimate that the healthcare reform law could account for more than $115 billion in new discretionary costs, nearly $65 billion more than first thought, and a figure that could change yet again because of the number of new programs where funding is expected, though not, not specified. The Congressional Budget Office, in a report sent to House Republicans, said funding for a number of federal agencies and for programs that are extended under the new law could cost about $105 billion in the next 10 years. In March, the CBO identified at least $50 billion in new discretionary spending that was inherent in the legislative package. In its latest projection, however, the CBO included provisions that were not factored in previous estimates released in March of this year. For instance, the CBO added costs for Indian health care and for provisions in the law that, that build on funding from programs already in existence. The agency also included funding for the National Health Service Corps, which it inadvertently had left out. 
By their nature, however, all such potential effects on discretionary spending are subject to future appropriation actions, which could result in greater or smaller costs than the sums authorized by the legislation, according to the CBO. Funding for Health and Human Services, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Internal Revenue Service, and other agencies to actually implement the new law could cost up to $20 billion over the next 10 years. The package includes dozens of programs such as for women's health initiatives, workforce management programs, and demonstration projects, which will be funded under the appropriations process at a later date. Congressional Republicans were quick to seize on the report, saying it validates their concerns that the reform bills would cost far more than Democrats said it would. The White House on Tuesday this week pledged to work in lockstep with House Democrats as they returned to their home districts and began to relay the many timelines and new programs and benefits included in the massive health care reform law. Republican House Minority Leader John Bonner chided the administration's rollout of the new reform law, sending a letter to Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius that points to higher cost estimates, job loss data, and a lack of follow-through on an executive order on abortion coverage as key areas of GOP concern. The letter counters one sent to lawmakers this week by Sebelius, which highlighted a number of the law's earliest deliverables, including health insurance reform and small business tax credits. Republicans have been critical of the reform package from the start, with most insisting that it would raise the cost of care instead of reining it in. So far, it has been a battle of words, but Republicans hope to parlay heated feelings over the law into election victories in November. Separately, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi championed the reform effort. More than 57 million non-elderly Americans, or about one in five, have diagnosed pre-existing health conditions that could lead to a denial of health coverage in today's insurance market, according to a new report from Families USA called Health Reform, Help for Americans with Pre-Existing Conditions. Ron Pollack, the advocacy group's executive director, said during a teleconference to release the report last week that tens of millions of Americans with diagnosed health conditions and the many others who at some point may receive such a diagnosis are the people most in need of health care coverage. He estimates that 57.2 million people with pre-existing conditions properly understates as there are many uninsured and underinsured people who have yet to be diagnosed with pre-existing conditions. While every age group is affected by such pre-existing conditions, that today could lead to a denial of health coverage. The problem grows significantly as people age, the report found. According to Pollock, one in six non-elderly have diagnosed pre-existing conditions, but among those 55 to 64 years old, more than two in five have diagnosed pre-existing conditions. The lowest income Americans are slightly more likely to be affected by pre-existing conditions. However, more than two-thirds, or 69.8% of those with pre-existing conditions that could lead to denial of coverage are middle-class and higher-income Americans. 
These are individuals and families with incomes above 200% of the federal poverty level or more than $44,100 for a family of four in 2010, the report noted. In related news, Senate Republicans, in a preemptive strike against one of the administration's highest-profile nominees, bashed the White House's pick, Donald Berwick, to run the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services using decades of written articles and public comments to tie him to broader plans to restrict care. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and two senior members, Pat Roberts of Kansas and John Barrisso of Wyoming, took to the Senate floor to paint Berwick as a proponent of rationing care as a means to drive down health care costs. Front and center to the argument are comments Berwick made praising Britain's government-run health service. That system, the senator said, has prolonged history of holding back or delaying care to certain severely sick patients. Roberts and other Republicans warned that measures adopted in the new reform law, including those that would create a Center for Comparative Effectiveness Research and a Medicare Payment Advisory Panel, could lead to decisions to greatly restrict medical care. President Obama nominated Burick, a pediatrician, patient safety advocate, and founder of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Cambridge, Massachusetts, on April 19th. The confirmation process must first go through the Senate Finance Committee, which has yet to schedule a hearing date. In other news, a decision this past Monday by the ambulance crew of North Star Critical Care in Glenmore, Ohio, to transport an accident victim with Stat Medivac rather than an Aravac Life Team helicopter based at the Columbiana County Airport caused a whirlwind of controversy. One Aravac crew member questioned why North Star Critical Care ambulance crews had called Stat when Aravac had a helicopter on the ground a few hundred feet from the accident scene. He accused Northstar of playing political games. Northstar owner Christy LaRussi said later, however, the decision was based on her experience with Aravac and the lack of working relationship between the two companies. LaRussi said she gave Aravac a chance in the past and said, the two times I used them, it was not a good situation for my patients. She alleged both times the arrival time for Aravac was far longer than it should have been for a helicopter coming from the county airport. In addition, LaRussi said Aravac is not associated with any hospital, while STAT comes from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and Life Flight from Allegheny General, both in Pittsburgh. There is no state law dictating which helicopter ambulance has to be called by an ambulance company, according to LaRussi. LaRussi said her decision to use the other helicopter services is nothing against the personnel at Aravac, but admitted the company is her competitor with its director, the same as the director of it at a competing ground ambulance company called Tri-County Ambulance. Accident rates and the safety of the Bell 206 long-range helicopter were also made by LaRussi, but countered by Aravac's spokesperson, Julie Hevernan. The Global Helicopter Flight Data Monitoring Steering Committee was formed following the Canada Helicopter Corporation Safety and Quality Summit held in Vancouver, Canada at the end of March. 
bringing together more than 70 people representing 48 organizations from around the world in all aspects of the industry, the steering group seeks to make HFDM as accessible as possible to all operators, both large and small, by sharing information with the intent of making HFDM easy for operators to implement. The wide adoption of HFDM has been recognized as a key initiative by the International Helicopter Safety Team formed in 2005 with the vision of reducing the rate of civil helicopter accidents by 80% within 10 years. The Global HFDM Steering Group will publish information on its website, which is expected to be ready in the near future, and will also be linked to the IHST website, which will host information in the interim. The Global HFDM Steering Group is co-chaired by Captain Mike Pilgrim, FDM advisor for CHC Helicopters European Operations, and Joseph Sizlow, Senior Manager, Aviation Safety for American Eurocopter. Pilgrim, long a proponent of HFDM, organized an HFDM day to follow last year's CHC Safety and Quality Summit in order to help open industry-wide communications between the original equipment manufacturers, operators, equipment suppliers, and other industry players. Based on the positive response, a further workshop was organized at this year's Safety and Quality Summit in Vancouver, which resulted in the formation of the community's 19-member steering group and working groups on technical, operational, communication issues. The goals of the organization as agreed to at this first meeting of the steering group were coordinate user requirements for HFDM systems and support and advise aircraft and equipment manufacturers in meeting those requirements, provide a source of expertise and information advice for users wishing to adopt HFDM, and develop and communicate industry best practice on HFDM matters. The next meeting of the global HFDM community will be held alongside the International Helicopter Safety Symposium and Helitac Show in Estoril, Portugal during the first week of October 2010. The National EMS Pilots Association has joined with Alertness Solutions to serve as the exclusive distributor of the Z-Coach Fatigue Management Program to members of the air medical transport community. Z-Coach is an internet-based program that provides individuals with knowledge, strategies, and tools to enhance safety and performance in 24-7 operations. Individuals can personalize the program and then take information and strategies offline to use in their everyday activities. This approach has been shown to increase critical knowledge, significantly increase sleep, and improve performance during actual operations. Individuals will have unlimited 24-7 access to Z-Coach for six months and can use the program as an ongoing resource for change. Z-Coach was created by Dr. Mark Rosekind and colleagues at Alertness Solutions. Dr. Rosekind is an internationally recognized expert in fatigue management who has worked with diverse operational groups all over the world. For the past two years, Dr. Rosekind has been supporting the EMS industry and NIMSVA efforts to address fatigue risks in operation. NEMSPA is offering Z-Coach to all members of the nationwide air medical transport community in an effort to provide scientifically-based practical strategies proven to enhance sleep, performance, and safety. 
Brian Bledsoe, a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Nevada School of Medicine, spoke during a fire rescue med conference on Monday, May 3rd. He said that the air medical industry is an industry out of control and an industry we need to rein in. Dr. Bledsoe outlined the huge increase in the number of medical helicopters across the United States over the past decade during the presentation. One of the main issues related to air medical safety, Dr. Bledsoe said, relates to the lack of regulation in the United States. The helicopter industry can't be touched because it falls under the Airline Deregulation Act, so states cannot really regulate medical helicopters, he said. The rise in the number of air medical operations in the past 10 years follows a trend of specific medical industries becoming out of hand, with Dr. Bledsoe citing the boutique psychiatric and substance abuse facilities of the 1980s and the home health care agencies of the 1990s. The number of medical helicopters has more than doubled in the past decade, and emergency personnel are feeling more pressure to use them, often unnecessarily, as more of them scramble for business. Dr. Bledsoe outlined the results of several studies that examined the use of air medical transport in both the United States and overseas. These included a UK study in 1996 of the London Helicopter Emergency Services, which was prospective comparison of seriously injured patients transported by helicopter EMS and ground EMS. It concluded that there is no evidence of any improvement in outcomes overall for extra cost and that the helicopter EMS has not been found to be a cost-effective service. Dr. Bledsoe said in many articles, there is a virtual statistical leap of faith to justify air medical transports. In a story that Air Medical Today has been following for several weeks now, St. Anthony, Canada Mayor Ern Sims said residents of many communities should fight the pending transfer of an air ambulance to Labrador. Residents of Newfoundland's northern peninsula took their anger over the pending loss of an air ambulance service to the grand opening of a court complex a week ago Monday. Sims said the demonstration was aimed at other residents of western Newfoundland who, he said, could be hurt by coming transfer of the ambulance to Happy Valley Goose Bay. Health Minister Jerome Kennedy announced the transfer last month, and that decision was based on evidence showing a greater need in Labrador. The demonstration marked the second time St. Anthony protesters took their displeasure on the road. A week earlier, they briefly shut down proceedings at the House of Assembly. The residents criticized the Drudge Report, the recent study of the Air Ambulance Service, which recommended the move from St. Anthony to Happy Valley Goose Bay, saying the report failed to recognize the greater medical services offered in St. Anthony. A two-page letter sent from Mr. Sims to Premier Danny Williams accused Mr. Kennedy of threatening people, cross-examining them, and making one St. Anthony town councilor cry. Straits White Bay member of the House of Assembly, Marshall Dean, said that after being asked if the Drudge Report had any merit, said, absolutely not. He said that he had done a lot of reading and research since the whole thing came out, and there's no merit to this report whatsoever. There's a complete absence of consultation. This past Monday, Mr. Kennedy told the House of Assembly that the air ambulance will be moving on May 30th. Newfoundland and Labrador's opposition liberals accused Kennedy 
Tuesday of maligning the reputation of an air ambulance pilot. Kennedy had told the legislature that the government would move the air ambulance in part because the pilot refused to fly this past weekend. But on Tuesday, liberal leader Yvonne Jones said Kennedy smeared the pilot, who said was simply too sick to work. The health authority governing Labrador in northern Newfoundland waded into the political dispute this Wednesday with a confirmation of two incidents involving an inability to respond quickly to calls. The first incident occurred on April 26 when the aircraft and the pilot remained in St. John's while a protest rally was occurring at the Confederation Building. An organizer in St. Anthony said campaigners had been speaking with a lawyer to see if the history of the air ambulance might provide grounds for an injunction. The first air ambulance that was put in the area was owned by the International Grenfell Association. Since 1981, when the government took it over, it is not clear if there's any stipulations in the agreement to say that it would need to stay in St. Anthony. This story has really gotten ugly, especially if patient care is compromised. I usually don't like to comment on the news, and especially something I don't have all the facts on since I have not read the Drudge Report, but you have to wonder whether some compromise could be constructed, perhaps where the specialty team could stay in St. Anthony and another crew located in Happy Valley Goose Bay. We shall see, and I am sure anyone looking at the health care debate here in the United States could be equally bewildered. Augusta Westland announced last week that Intermountain Healthcare in Utah has signed for three Augusta Grand New helicopters with options for two additional aircraft. Intermountain Life Flight, a division of Intermountain Healthcare, currently has two Augusta A109K2 helicopters already in service, serving Utah and northern Nevada. Each Grand New will be equipped with a comprehensive EMS interior featuring single or dual stretchers in addition to a rescue hoist, wire strike protection, snow skis, and night vision goggle compatibility. The aircraft will be completed and delivered at Augusta Westland's Philadelphia, Pennsylvania production facility. The Grand New is the first helicopter in its class to incorporate a synthetic vision system, highway in the sky, and helicopter terrain awareness and warning systems to provide full terrain and obstacle awareness in low visibility flying conditions. The system provides the pilot with three-dimensional guidance and detailed terrain maps resulting in advanced operating capacity. The Grand New also already meets the latest NTSB FAA recommendations for EMS operations to consider the use of an FAA-approved night vision goggle or enhanced vision system into flight programs when conditions and missions dictate. A former corporate jet that once flew bankers is Manitoba, Canada's new Life Flight Air Ambulance. The two-engine Cessna Citation C-560 jet will fly critically ill and injured patients from Manitoba's north for emergency hospital care in the city. The province is in active discussions on getting a helicopter air ambulance to fly critical patients in southern Manitoba. There are a number of different models being looked at, including ongoing discussions with Alberta-based Shock Trauma Air Rescue Society, or STARS. STARS was contracted by the province a year ago to provide a helicopter air ambulance during the spring flood. 
The Manitoba government paid $6 million to upgrade the jet with the needed medical gear to monitor patients. The price tag for the jet was an additional $3.7 million and was bought in the United States. It replaces an older aircraft. LifeLight transports about 600 critically ill Manitobans each year from the north to Winnipeg hospitals. A group of critical care physicians, emergency physicians, and obstetricians provide 24-hour medical coverage for the program. Critically injured people in Helmut, California, would be more likely to survive if the city council approves a contract that would replace a helicopter ambulance at a fire station. About 10 months ago, Mercy Air relocated its Banning helicopter to the community of Thermal, north of the Salton Sea. That changed the response time of the helicopter from about 20 minutes to 35 minutes. The two-year contract being considered with Air Methods, the parent company of Mercy Air, would place the helicopter at a station near the Helmet Rhine Airport. Mercy Air would pay the city $45,000 per year, according to the contract, and would base a pilot, nurse, and paramedic at the station 24-7. Health First Air Rescue Ambulance in Brevard County, Florida, is adopting night vision goggles. Each of the three crew members have a pair of the goggles, giving them the ability to see better during night calls, which make up 40% of their flights. Every first flight pilot, flight nurse, and flight paramedic has undergone extensive training to use the new equipment. Eagle Air Med will be donating a new ventilator to the Blue Mountain Hospital in Blanding, Utah. The specific piece of equipment donated by Eagle Air Med is designed for use with infants to adults and may be used in the intensive care unit, recovery room, or emergency department. Because of the nearly $10,000 price tag, the facility had not been able to secure a ventilator. From previous transports with Blue Mountain Hospital, we were keenly aware that this specific piece of equipment was needed by the facility, said Jim Hunt, Eagle Air Med Vice President. We are grateful we have the opportunity to make such a donation, a donation that will benefit our local hospital and in turn the entire community. American MedFlight, a Reno, Nevada-based company, is considering moving its operations and about 50 employees to the Carson, Nevada airport, but not without some hurdles. The hangar the company wants to move into was originally leased as a storage facility 15 years ago. The lease is good for 50 years and is worth about $1 million. The problem is that American MedFlight would use the facility for commercial purposes, which would mean the lease would have to be modified from storage to commercial. But the Carson City District's attorney office has said that in order to change the lease, Nevada law requires the hangar's current owner to walk away from the 35 years remaining early to allow Carson City Airport Authority to put the lease back out to bid as commercial space. Steve Tax, general counsel for the airport authority, said the circumstances are unfortunate, but the law is the law. Jack Dawson, president of American MedFlight, said he still wants to try to work through the issue, adding he thinks it's a matter of interpretation, and if he cannot get the lease amended, the next step would be the state legislature. David Philpott, the former London Air Ambulance Chief, who was sacked after he raised concerns with the trustee board about the charity's solvency and began investigating complaints against some board members, has set himself up as a consultant. 
David Philpot & Associates offers strategic solutions and interim management in the fields of fundraising, governance, media and marketing, compliance, and general business. He has already been retained by four ambulance charities, a volunteer organization, and the Kent Children's Fund Network. He has been hired by the network for three months to help raise its profile locally and develop a supporter base. Philpott was dismissed from the London Air Ambulance Charity last November after 12 weeks and the job, following a run-in with the chair and some trustees. He lodged an appeal against his dismissal at the time, but this now looks unlikely to proceed. The Charity Commission looked into the situation and provided some guidance to the trustees about certain financial and governance issues, but made no judgment about whether they were correct to dismiss Philpott from his posts, claiming that was a matter for the trustees. The Royal Flying Doctor Service, best known for its aeromedical services, is expanding and streamlining its health care clinic activity. In the 2008-2009 financial year, the RFDS Queensland section treated 20% more patients at primary health care clinics than the previous financial year. In total, 5,100 clinics were conducted where more than 44,800 patient consultations took place. RFDS Queensland Section Communications Coordinator Renee Kirkman said last Friday had marked a milestone for RFDS Australia-wide with the Queensland Section launching a fleet of dedicated aircraft to support the delivery of primary health services to North Queensland communities. She said the fleet was made up of two Cessna Grand Caravan C-280s and one Beechcraft Air B-200 for the transport of RFDS Carnes base primary health care staff to remote communities granting local access to vital RFDS health services. Prior to the launch of this new fleet, aircraft in the Carnes base were used both for aeromedical and primary health care work. At times, with emergency tasking having priority, this meant some clinics had to be canceled or moved, with rural and remote areas not being able to then access vital services. The FAA announced last week that a ground-based wide area augmentation system is now being used in Juneau, Alaska, enabling controllers to track aircraft along the approach into the airport where radar coverage isn't possible owing to the surrounding mountains. With wide area multilateration, controllers safely can reduce separation between arriving aircraft to five nautical miles. Currently, only one aircraft at a time can fly down the Terrain Challenge flight path into Juneau. The system comprises of a network of small sensors that send out signals that are received and sent back by aircraft transponders. It triangulates the returning signals to determine the precise location of each aircraft. Controllers are able to see those aircraft on their, ra- on their screens as if they were radar targets. When satellite-based ADS-B is deployed nationwide, expected in 2013, WAM will become a backup system at Juno. A WAM system is also operating in Colorado. The Atlantic City International Airport, where the FAA's Technical Center is located, is the first in the national airspace system to deliver digital notices to airmen called NOTAMs. 
NOTAMs provide computer-generated safety information to pilots and air traffic controllers about conditions at an airport, such as construction and hazards. Atlantic City started using the new system on April 20th. Digital NOTAMs have safety and efficiency benefits over traditional NOTAMs. They can be transmitted to all air traffic management systems simultaneously so everyone gets the same information at the same time. The information is integrated into cockpits and air traffic control systems. With the new digital system, airspace users get easier to read information that goes directly into computer systems that map the information and assist pilots with identifying NOTAMs that affect their particular flight. Traditional NOTAMs use all uppercase lettering, contain contractions, and use non-standard phrasing based on legacy teletype systems. Also, it is difficult to integrate traditional NOTAMs into maps and other graphical aids that would assist with pilot and controller situational awareness. Another advantage to the digital NOTAM is that the originator of the NOTAM can input the information themselves, so an airport operator can report airport conditions directly to the NOTAM system instead of relaying the information to a specialist who would manually type the information. That process can leave too much room for error and can be time-consuming. Pilots will get quicker and more accurate information with the new system. Other airports that will follow the lead of Atlantic City International include Washington Dulles, Reagan National, Baltimore Washington International, Richmond, Norfolk, Denver, Chicago O'Hare, Chicago Midway, Memphis, Fairbanks, Alaska, and Fort Wayne, Indiana. The Association of Air Medical Services and the Medevac Foundation International will join forces with Vision Zero and the Muddy Angels for the 2010 National EMS Memorial Bike that is starting tomorrow, May 15th, and going through Saturday, May 22nd. The bike ride kicks off the 37th Annual Emergency Medical Services Week, which takes place May 16th through 22nd, under the theme Anytime, Anywhere will be there, with May 19th set aside as Emergency Medical Services for Children Day. The EMS Memorial Bike Ride is dedicated to honoring emergency medical services personnel via various cycling events throughout the country. The cycle rides are designed to memorialize and celebrate the lives of those EMS personnel who selflessly risk their lives every day and those who have become sick or injured or have died in the line of duty. Vision Zero, a medical transport safety awareness initiative of AIMS and the Medevac Foundation International, is participating in the bike ride to honor fallen flight crew members. A major focus of Vision Zero is to proactively build greater safety in emergency medical transport through crew education, awareness, and vigilance. Major routes for the ride include the Portland, Maine, and Bennington, Vermont route, which winds through New Hampshire, Connecticut, New York, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and Maryland to Washington, D.C., and the Kentucky route, which travels through West Virginia and Virginia to the same destination. In addition to the National EMS Memorial Bike Ride, hundreds of coast-to-coast grassroots activities are planned in honor of EMS Week, including bicycle and water safety demonstrations, classes on first aid and CPR, 
medical helicopter fly-ins, and open houses at fire stations, among other events. PHI reported financial results for the quarter ended March 31, 2010 last week. Air medical segment revenues for the quarter were $33.6 million, and segment operating income was $0.6 million, compared to revenues of $39.1 million and an operating loss of $1.3 million for the quarter ending March 31, 2009. Air Methods Corporation also reported financial results for the quarter ended March 31, 2010, and provided an update on April 2010 flight volumes last week. For the quarter, revenue decreased 5% to $118.5 million from $125.4 million in the prior year quarter. Net income for the first quarter of 2010 was $0.1 million, or 0.1 per diluted share, compared with a net income of $5 million, or 0.41 per diluted share, in the first quarter of 2009. As previously announced by the company, the decrease in net income was primarily attributed to lower patient flight volumes associated with increased weather severity and to higher maintenance expenditures. Community-based patient transports were 8,592 during the current year quarter, compared with 9,432 in the prior year quarter, a 9% decrease. Patients transported by community bases in operation greater than one year, same base transports, decreased by 14% or 1,238 transports, while weather cancellations for those same bases increased by 635 transports compared with the prior year quarter. Requests for the community-based service decreased 9% for bases open greater than one year, partially attributed to the effort of the more severe weather in overall need for service. Flight volume within hospital operations also declined 11% as compared with the prior year quarter. Net revenue per community-based transport increased 4% from $7,305 to $7,621 in the current year quarter despite a decrease in insured patients from 43% to 36% of total community-based transports as compared with the prior year quarter. Approximately half of this percentage decrease moved to Medicare coverage with the other half to Medicaid. Maintenance expense increased $1.9 million, or 12%, compared with the prior year quarter, despite a 15% decline in flight hours. This increase was primarily attributed to a near doubling of major maintenance events during the quarter, as compared with the first quarter of 2009. Fuel expense increased by $0.2 million to $3 million, compared with the prior year quarter, reflecting a 19% increase per hour flown. For the first quarter, community-based divisional revenue decreased 4% to $66.7 million compared to $69.2 million in the prior year, while segment net income decreased to $0.9 million from $7.9 million. Hospital-based divisional revenue decreased 1% to $48 million from $48.6 million in the prior year period, while segment net income remained mostly unchanged at $4 million compared with $4.1 million in the prior year quarter. 
The company also provided an update on April 2010 flight volume. Total community-based transports were 3,478 during April 2010 compared to 3,453 in April 2009. April 2010 same-base transports decreased by 139, or 4%, as compared with April 2009. Weather cancellations during April 2010 for these same bases decreased 220 transports as compared with the prior year month. This past Monday marked a somber anniversary for the members of the Madison medical community. It was two years ago on Monday when a MedFlight helicopter from the University of Wisconsin Hospital crashed in the fog near La Crosse, killing all three crew members aboard. At the time, the helicopter wasn't equipped with terrain avoidance systems or night vision goggles, and since then, MedFlight has updated its safety gear. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. Today I am interviewing Dustin Duncan, who is the chairperson of the Family Grant Fund and Children's Scholarship Program Committees for the Medevac Foundation International. Dustin began his career in EMS as a volunteer emergency medical technician while attending high school in southeastern South Dakota. As an EMT, he was exposed to an air medical transport, which ultimately played a large part in his pursuit of becoming a flight nurse. After three years of working in the intensive care unit, emergency department, and a burned unit as an RN, Dustin became a flight nurse with Mercy Flight in north-central Montana. Since Mercy, he has worked as a chief flight nurse, flight program manager, and interim roles as an emergency department director in Montana and western Colorado. In January 2010, Dustin became the clinical services manager with AirLink Critical Care Transport in Bend, Oregon. He currently serves on the board of directors for the Medevac Foundation International and serves as the chairperson of the Family Grant Fund and Children's Scholarship Program Committees. Dustin previously served on the board of directors for the Association of Air Medical Services and the Colorado Organization of Nurse Leaders. Outside of work, Dustin's free time is spent with his family and enjoying a passion for unique classic cars. This includes his fully restored 1956 Cadillac Ambulance that frequents many parades and car shows. I have not seen this gem in person, but in viewing many pictures that he posts, it is in mint condition. Dustin's wife and two boys, 9 and 11, will be making the move to Bend later in May after school is out. Welcome to the podcast, Dustin. I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Well, thanks, Ed, for having me on. Well, first off, um, I know you have a brand new position, and I know a lot of our listeners uh, know you. Uh, could you tell us about it? You bet. Uh, started out in uh, Bend, Oregon, with the uh, AirLink Critical Care Transport Program in January this year as their new uh, AirLink Services Manager. Uh, allowed me an opportunity to uh, uh, get into a uh, another program that's hospital-based, and very like to the, the similar programs that I've worked with in the past. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and you're working with uh, its uh, 
Northwest MedStar, correct? Correct. Uh, Northwest MedStar uh, entered into an agreement last fall with uh, Airlink and St. Charles Hospital and Bend uh, Management Services Agreement uh, to provide uh, uh, day-to-day management oversight as well as um, uh, support uh, from a higher level. And uh, so my role uh, was to come in in January and uh, work with the program and um, um, move them forward. Yeah. And you have some connections to Bend too, right? Family. I've got some family out in, in Oregon, and uh, in one of my previous positions uh, when I was uh, in Great Falls, Montana, we used to uh, make regular trips out to uh, the Oregon area to visit with the family. And so we're within a couple hours of them now and, uh, and within uh, you know, a couple hours of the coast as well as uh, I've got the mountains right in our backyard and uh, a lot of similar uh, type of outdoor activities that uh, are, are available in Grand Junction, where we're coming from. Right. Yeah. Well, I've heard a lot of good things uh, about Ben. Of course, uh, you know Michael Green lives there, and then a friend of mine um, that I ski with, his son lives out there too. So it uh, sounds like a wonderful place. I've got to get out uh, sometime soon. Absolutely. Uh, have you uh, moved everything? You're still in the process of moving things from Grand Junction. Still in the process. Uh, given given starting the position in January, I've got uh, two boys that are nine and eleven, and with their schooling as well as my uh, wife being a college instructor, uh, moving into the spring uh, or at the end of their semesters was uh, uh, far more ideal than than pulling folks out of school. And so, they're actually uh, within the next couple of weeks we'll be moving out and uh, looking forward to having our our family under one roof. Yeah, that that's got to be nice. I know that can. Uh be difficult. Uh, has there been any uh, issues you know, to sell the house in Grand Junction? Uh, we, we're very lucky. Uh, we, uh, we were able to price our house to sell, and it uh, sold in a relatively uh, you know, oh, short period of time. Uh, purchasing a home on this end has uh, been a little bit tedious, just given uh, uh, the way the market is with uh, short sales and foreclosures and the processes that go with that. But we're very optimistic that uh, in, in June we should uh, you know, have a better idea of, uh, you know, whether we'll be able to move into the home we've been pursuing or if we'll uh, just rent for the time being and continue looking. Yeah. Well, uh, best of luck and a big, big congratulations. And I know that you'll be successful uh, uh, there with the position. Uh, and as I said, Bend is such a great place to live and having your family together, I'm sure that'll be uh, even better. Absolutely. We're looking forward to a great summer together. Well, Dustin, you have been involved with both uh, the Ames Board of Directors and the Medevac Foundation International uh, Board. I, I guess tell our listeners a little bit about that history and how you first became involved uh, in with the Ames Board and then with the Foundation Board and what your current term is. Sure. Uh, in 2005, there was uh, the Ames Region 2, uh, which is where I've uh, pretty much uh, uh, been the entire time in my career in the mountain states. There was a vacancy on the Ames board there due to somebody uh, stepping out of the region that was the current board member. And so uh, caught my interest and uh, sought that out and was selected and, and eventually reelected into that position in the fall of 2005. Um, as part of uh, uh, being part of the Ames board, they've got uh, two uh, positions on the foundation board uh, that are uh, uh, Ames board member assigned individuals, and I was uh, chosen uh, in the fall of 2005 to be one of those folks. And so played a dual role as both Ames board member and foundation board member um, until the uh, spring of 2008 uh, when I had uh, an opportunity to uh, step away from the Ames board but yet remain active on the foundation board. That's great. So, and, and what term are you in on the foundation board? 
I'm in my final two-year term, and uh-huh. so uh, the, the, you're able to do three two-year terms, and so I'm into the uh, uh, first year of my two-year term, and then uh, beginning this fall, I'll start uh, the second of the uh, uh, term and uh, uh, be finished up in the uh, fall of 2011. Yeah, well, that's, that's great. Boy, time flies. I can't believe that was 2008 because uh, I know you were the regional director when I was president of Ames, and I always appreciated you. Did, you did such a great job with your communication to the region, especially that little newsletter you put together. So that was uh, really worked out well. I think that's always been one of your strong points is communication. I appreciate that. Yes. Sir. Well, let's talk about the family grant uh, fund uh, first. What, what was the impetus and intent behind the fund, and who were all the key people involved? Sure. Well, the Family Grant Fund um, was an idea that uh, was was brought to the foundation uh, by Stacy Friedman, who's a sister of a, a flight nurse uh, with uh, Airlift Northwest that uh, uh, perished in a crash, and she had identified uh, uh, and uh, connected with other family members that had communicated that following a immediately following a crash, that oftentimes there were incidental expenses that uh, quickly came to be that oftentimes uh, families didn't have the ability to cover some of those expenses. And um, example being lodging, food, uh, child care, uh, sometimes some crisis social services uh, and other things. Mm-hmm. And so she had uh, brought that to the foundation. And at that time, uh, the foundation's uh, primary mission and, and emphasis was on education and research. Um, there was a small amount of outreach that was being done, uh, but not to this degree. And so the uh, uh, theory behind the Family Grant Fund uh, came through Stacy. Um, I, you know, feel like I partnered with her in terms of really trying to connect with the foundation in terms of this need. And uh, it was in uh, 2008 that the uh, Medevac Foundation agreed to uh, develop the Family Grant Fund formally and uh, assist in uh, raising m- money as well as developing uh, uh, the structure behind uh, distribution of funds from that fund. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Stacy and you worked on that. Was there a formal presentation then to the the board and how this would all work? There was uh, mm-hmm. immediately following Stacy's uh, sister's crash. She became very involved, I think, in just trying to understand the uh, air medical transport industry. And I was first introduced to her um, at the spring conference back in uh, 2006 uh, by one of our other Ames board members. Uh, I think we at were both. Time. We were both at that. I was at that meeting too. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I think we both had our first introductions yeah. to Stacy, and uh, uh, I think uh, you would agree. Uh, you know, again, she's. Uh, um, again, leaves a very um, strong first impression and asked uh, a lot of questions that yes. I don't know that I'd ever heard from families before. And it really caught my attention in terms of uh, really um, thinking about my own family as well as some of the crew members that I uh, was working with at the time on what their families do or really don't know about what we do, as well as you know what type of support um, do programs offer, um, whether again, by obligation or otherwise, to those families um, after something like this happens. Yeah. Well, then, so you had talked to her and you came up with the idea. Let's maybe go back a little bit. Tell us about a little bit about the history and the important dates and how you went from that idea and, and working with her to actually obtaining the, the fund status within the foundation. 
Well, again, I, as, as Stacy became uh, more involved uh, with understanding of uh, air medical transport in general, uh, it was evident that there were, were several other families and family members out there a lot like herself mm-hmm. uh, that had experienced experienced loss, and uh, she quickly connected with those individuals, uh, both by phone, by email, and uh, they even got together on, on some occasions um, outside of um, uh, outside of uh, any specific area, including uh, the NTSB hearings that took place in uh, 2008. Uh, a large group of family members there met for the first time, and uh, again, I offered a lot of support for one another, but there was also clearly uh, the the need that was identified from the other family members for the uh, premise behind the family grant fund. Mm-hmm. And so, how long of a time period from when you did the presentation and got the fund status? How long are we talking about? It was about a year and a half, two year mm-hmm. period. And again, a lot of it was really just working out uh, some of the logistics in terms of uh, the need for it, I think, was um, clearly identified. And I think that the uh, Medevac Foundation Board uh, was quick to acknowledge that. Uh, some of what uh, uh, took time thereafter was actually developing the process and looking in some of the, the legal aspects of um, dollars like this and uh, a dist- you know, disrupting. Contributing unsolicited dollars per se to family members and what implications and what processes that needed to be into place. And so that portion of it took six months to a year to work out uh, prior to the first distribution. Right. Was there some reluctance, and I, I don't want to get into all the details, but, you know, sometimes when you have specific funds, usually a foundation, you know, would like people to give in general rather than to a specific fund. Was there some talk about that or some of the positives and negatives about having a uh, restricted fund? It was the first time, actually, that I'm aware of that. The the foundation was was, uh, approached with an idea about a restricted fund. Mm -hmm. And um, again, with the restricted fund, uh, there were were board members uh, with uh, background in fundraising that uh, clearly saw the benefit of having a restricted fund. And, and targeting a specific uh, uh, group or or um, uh, individuals to donate uh, specifically to the fund, right. but at the same time, it does just it, indeed that it does restrict those funds, uh, and so there was some question in terms of uh, from an operational standpoint, uh, the, the expenses that come with operating a foundation, uh, how those uh, restricted funds may have an impact on the day to day operations or expenses of the foundation. Yeah, it's it's probably two edged, but you know probably the good thing is that it gets people that might not have otherwise given that really want to support that program. So um, I know Stacy and Dr. Hutton were two of the initial donors of the program. Tell us more about, you know, their involvement in this initial seating and then the donations that you've now received since then. Again, Stacy, truly, this this was a passion of hers uh, to to the extent where uh, uh, she was she was willing to uh, you know lay the groundwork and the seed money uh, to get the fund off the ground. And so, her and Dr. Hutton uh, had somewhat matching funds of sorts uh, to to launch the campaign. And uh, it was it was nice to see that several board members, even thereafter, uh, you know, were willing to donate and earmark some of those funds. Uh, specifically to the the family grant fund being restricted, mm-hmm. and um, you know again help lay some of that groundwork uh, for some of the uh, different campaigns and awareness uh, to um, you know, the air medical community as a whole of the creation of the fund, the need for donations, as well as uh, the history and the premise behind it. All right. 
Well, what specifically are you doing now to raise funds for the family grant fund? I mean, are you doing some tech special targeting um, reach outs to people um, or it, is there things that you're doing that would be different than the solicitation for the foundation in general? Uh, more than anything, what we're finding is, is because it is a relatively new fund, um, it, it is obviously tied to those uh, circumstances where uh, there is a, a serious crash with uh, serious injury or, or fatalities. Uh, the awareness piece of it is, is um, where we're really trying to put an emphasis on that it does exist. Um, some of the campaigns that we've done over the last year to two years are the Given Hour campaign uh, that the foundation had. Mm -hmm. And that particular campaign really was uh, targeted at the folks that uh, are out uh, kind of where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, with uh, the flight crew members, pilots, uh, maintenance folks, um, uh, the folks at that program level, uh, letting them know that uh, with the Given Hour campaign that if um, – Again, they could just, uh, you know, give an hour, whether, again, they wanted to do that uh, monthly, uh, quarterly, or on an annual basis that, uh, you know, all of that from a, a collective standpoint really could make a difference and, and found out that that was a, a target audience specific to the fund that uh, a lot of individuals that had never given to the foundation before uh, were new donors. And, uh, again, the uh, Family Grant Fund was um, something that I believe that they, they, they supported the uh, uh, need and the cause behind it. So, so has the Given Hour program been the source of a lot of the uh, directed funds for a family grant, or is, uh, is that one of many? It, it is one of many. I think, again, uh, the, the acknowledgement to Stacey Friedman and Dr. Hutton uh, individually in terms of their donations were, were very substantial to help uh, get the fund uh, up and running and, and, and provide those dollars so we could uh, – uh, you know, start the process. Uh, if we really look at collectively the individuals uh, that have given, I think the Given Hour campaign uh, and uh, just being aware at AMTC and Spring Conference and talking about the fund, uh, we have uh, seen probably our largest quantity of donors uh, coming from the Given Hour campaign. Yeah, excellent. But Kevin had also mentioned that there had been some distributions from the fund um, and the amount is $2,000 per crew member's family. Um, can you tell us a little about uh, what distributions have been made? Absolutely. Uh, the $2,000 per uh, crew member family was something that um, was a recommendation from the uh, uh, committee that oversees uh, the family grant fund to the, the foundation board uh, based on dollars that were available at the uh, time that we were ready to uh, implement the fund. Mm -hmm. And uh, first distribution occurred in uh, September of 2009 uh, following a, a fatal helicopter crash in South Carolina. And uh, there was a crew of three, no patient on board, uh, that a total of $6,000 or 2000 per family was uh, distributed. And, and since that time, we've had three additional uh, fatal crashes, um, all helicopter, uh, to where $2,000 per crew member uh, family has been distributed. So a total of $24,000 uh, has been distributed in the last um, eight to nine months. And is is the 2000 amount uh, that came from, you know, your best ideas of what would be helpful. Um, have you had feedback from the families that have received it, and has it been helpful to them? 
the feedback's been wonderful. We, mm-hmm. We've had some direct feedback from, from individual families. Uh, we've had feedback from some of the vendors as well as programs, uh, specifically coming, you know, uh, family comments through them, and it has been overwhelming. I think the gesture in itself, rather than the specific dollar amount, um, is where we've been really, you know, hearing yes. the most praise and, um, you know, realizing that uh, in, in one particular case, uh, one program uh, who was not aware that the fund existed. Uh, and uh, at this point, the, the foundation, given it is relatively new, uh, we do seek out uh, those programs or vendors after the crash occurs to make them aware of the fund and let them know that, um, you know, there is some base, basic information that we need. And with their help, uh, we can, uh, you know, help get the, the funds uh, sent out to them to help distribute directly to the families. And so uh, in, in at least one particular case, one program was so impressed with uh, uh, the premise behind the fund that uh, they themselves are, are uh, going to be making a donation to the foundation uh, earmarked directly to the fund in, in memory of their crew members. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I I, I can see where, you know, working with the programs, they probably really appreciate that support too, um, that they can work with the families and, you know, knowing and can contact them and say, hey, there's this fund that's available. We want you to take advantage of it. Um, is the 2000, is is that going to change potentially if you raise more funds? Would that amount go up or is that something that you'll continue to look at? Uh, we we're continuing to look on that at, on that at a uh, on an annual basis uh, from a budgeting standpoint. Uh, the, the dollar amount when we initially came up with that was also looking at uh, historically uh, speaking uh, previous uh, uh, crashes that had occurred in previous years, mm-hmm. trying to get an idea of what you know we might anticipate for distribution. But at the same time, we've got very high hopes that uh, again, if we can write reach the right donor who's willing to give a significant amount, ultimately to be able to develop an endowment uh, to where having a, a large donation and um, having the interest uh, you know, with that donation uh, support the distributions right. yeah. uh, would essentially allow us to have a lot more latitude there. Uh, I think, um, again, the $2,000 is, is just a start in terms of that uh, unforeseen expense that a family does incur. Uh, and, I, and I do confidently feel like most programs or vendors out there uh, probably try to help out uh, immediately after the crash in some some way, shape, or form. But at the same time, I don't know that uh, a lot of the families know that uh, they should ask for help uh, from the, the programs or the vendors or their, their uh, family member's employer. So, uh, you know, while the 2000 is, is definitely a start, it would be, you know, much more ideal if we could, uh, you know, give twice that amount or more. And then obviously a good problem would be to, you know, have a significant amount of money in the fund, uh, but not have to distribute any of the funds. Absolutely. Uh, and so that when we really look at our long-term vision and goal, those are kind of the two things that we're really looking at is endowment and um, obviously the uh, the work that the foundation does to, uh, uh, again, enhance the safety of what we do to prevent and mitigate any future crashes to where um, distribution, uh, you know, wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, it's a, obviously a great thing to have, but one of those things you just never want to use, really. Um, Absolutely. So. Dustin, you had mentioned the, the committee. Now, are the committee members board members, or are these folks that are outside the um, foundation board that advise? Uh-huh. That's a great question. We've got a little bit of both. We've got mm-hmm. uh, folks that are on the board, and uh, you know those are folks that volunteer to be on this committee. And uh, whether it's because of an experience that they've had at a, a program themselves, or uh, you know a program that's kind of near and dear to them, uh, there has been you know a few that have 
stepped up there and joined the committee. We've also uh, reached outside of the, uh, uh, the foundation board as well as the Ames board and sought out some folks too that uh, uh, have um, other uh, initiatives in place. Uh, Steve Sweeney, who has uh, yes. mm-hmm. uh, been working as well with the Air Medical uh, Memorial, we've uh, gotten him on the committee, and he's been a, a wonderful uh, addition to the committee to help us understand you know, some of the things that he's learning through his endeavors. Uh, Michael Todd, who is uh, also active in the air medical uh, industry at uh, one time from a public relations, media relations standpoint, um, is on the committee. And uh, again, Mike brings a lot of experience, but also kind of a, a non-biased approach, uh, uh, given that he's not actively involved. And so uh, folks like that with varying backgrounds uh, have uh, been approached and uh, hasn't been real difficult to, to convince them to come on board when they really understand uh, the, uh, the intent and the goal behind uh, the, the family grant fund and what we're ultimately trying to do. Yeah, well, excellent. Are you doing some things, what are you doing to publicize and communicate uh, about the program to you know, both folks within the air medical community and folks outside the air medical community? Uh, well, at, at this point, uh, you know, we're trying to use um, any and all uh, uh, means of communication, whether it's in, in writing versus a website, uh, as well as social media. But we do realize that, uh, again, in, in order to permeate out to uh, uh, the, the level of the flight crews, as well as the family level, that, you know, it takes much more than just a uh, single type of communication and mm-hmm. definitely multiple forms. So in addition to the uh, Medevac Foundation website, which does uh, discuss the Family Grant Fund, uh, it discusses kind of the, again, the intent and the purpose behind it, uh, we have had some written communications uh, that have gone out from the foundation uh, to the program and the vendor level. Uh, we've contacted uh, leadership at the program level, uh, making them aware of the fund, and then also asking that they help uh, communicate uh, the fund and its availability and the intent behind it down to the the crew member level. Uh, Some of that has been done by direct mailing. Uh, Some of that's been done by email. And then, of course, we're uh, uh, routinely using social media as another means of of getting that out. Uh, In terms of educating the the general public, uh, we have had um, press releases that have gone out uh, initially when the the fund came to fruition. And uh, we uh, officially had deployed it in the fall of 2009. Uh, we had done some media releases, press releases, uh, made a formal announcement at uh, AMTC 2009, and um, continue to take any and every opportunity that we have, uh, including some you know wonderful um, uh, stories and and quotes and and comments uh, from those that uh, have been positively affected by the Family Grant Fund, and uh, try to you know share those comments with uh, with others that uh, may be interested. Have you received any, you know, after a crash, maybe like like the one in Tennessee just recently, have you seen any publicity from mainstream media that uh, that the families have received money? Uh, we, we have not, and, mm-hmm. and that's something that, uh, from a foundation standpoint, uh, again, we, we, we don't want to necessarily take advantage of the, uh, Absolutely. Uh, the, right. the donation of the dollars there. Again, uh, the, the intent behind it is to, is to give during their time of need, uh, but at the same time, um, you know, we've been very fortunate that, um, you know, with some of the comments that we've had, uh, it wouldn't be surprising that uh, out of the four uh, 
distributions or poor crashes that we've had distributions that uh, even uh, months after the fact that uh, you know story about the foundation's role and we're exploring some other roles in terms of what uh, the foundation can provide uh, and be a segue for resources uh, to those families um, even you know again months or years after uh, you know they are affected by a crash and, yeah and, the, the, I, of course and when I as soon as I asked that I it wasn't my intent because you don't want to go off you know, bad thing. And then there's privacy issues, but it is such a great program, you know, that the, it'd be nice to have the general media understand, understand it and, and publicize it. Absolutely. We were very yeah. fortunate that uh, we, we were uh, approached uh, in 2008, uh, which uh, was a very tragic year uh, with most, mm-hmm. multiple mishaps and crashes um, by the Washington Post. And, and the Washington Post writer uh, really was interested in uh, the, the, the fund itself and the history behind it. At that point, we were just finalizing things and had not made a distribution. But we were um, uh, very appreciative of the fact that in their article, uh, that discussed uh, the, the business side or the operation of air medical transport in general, that they did talk about the foundation and the good work that they do and specifically did make mention of the family grant fund and then the uh, work we were doing to get that uh, in place. Mm-hmm. Any new plans that you have, the committee or the the board, to get the word out or uh, new initiatives with the program? Uh, again, we, we you know we continue to partner with you know those within our our air medical community that are the experts. Uh, we're very fortunate to have a, a group of individuals uh, with the communication and public relations committee on the association side with Ames and others that we're seeking out uh, specifically on the uh, committee that oversees the funds. Uh, that have a background like that, uh, you know, and tap into them and the you know, different opportunities that they see, uh, both regionally uh, and locally, as well as on a national level, in terms of um, again uh, promoting uh, the work and the, and the premise behind the fund. Okay, well, let's let's move on to the children's scholarship uh, program. Dustin, is this also a restricted fund within the foundation? It is, and this was a, uh, a fund that was kind of developed in concert, uh, but clearly uh, separate from the family grant fund. And um, again, the time frame was about the same in terms of uh, uh, 2008, uh, being approached by a small group of individuals uh, regarding the idea of, of creating such a fund. And uh, uh, the foundation at that time, again, uh, was more than willing uh, to, to listen to these uh, type of opportunities outside of uh, research and education specific uh, uh, grants and uh, came to be in uh, in 2009 and uh, we sought out uh, applications in 2000 uh, spring of 2009 and was able to make our first uh, award from the scholarship uh, last fall okay and so who were the individuals that that came to you to start uh, initially, initially uh, EMS uh, Sky Connect uh, were the, mm-hmm. was the first folks that came to us with the idea behind it. Uh, once we had some further discussions, uh, we were very fortunate that uh, uh, PHI Air Medical Group, uh, one of the vendors uh, in, in the transport industry, uh, made a substantial donation to the uh, fund, uh, as well as we had an individual donation from uh, Mr. Paul Pitts, uh, which um, tragically lost his wife in a car accident uh, within that prior year. And so the donations that he had made were in memory of his uh, wife, Patty Pitts. I see. And so this is set up as a, a separate fund within the foundation. Does this um, also have a committee? 
It, it does, and, mm-hmm. and actually, I, I currently serve as the the chair um, over both of these. Um, uh, funds uh, or the scholarship and the family grant fund uh, with the the children's scholarship uh, the, the individuals that are involved there uh, their role has been primarily to uh, review applications and um, objectively uh, uh, look at uh, the uh, the scholarship uh, scholarship uh, submissions and uh, mm-hmm. help with the awarding or selecting of the the candidates uh, for the scholarship and so who is eligible i mean I know it it would be uh, a son or daughter of a crew member that's lost their life on, a, on an air medical program, but is it is it broader than that? Again, it was a wonderful question. What we ended up doing in that case was is we really reached out to not only the folks that uh, provided some of the seed money, but others to uh, you know really find out um, you know who are the individuals that uh, you know would would be um, or should be eligible for this. Um, mm-hmm in terms of uh, being affected. And what we decided upon is, is that any dependent or immediate relative of a um, air medical flight crew member or a patient that lost their life in an air medical accident, and that includes the parents, step-parents, uh, legal guardians, and even oh. grandparents yeah. uh, are eligible for the scholarship. Well, that's wonderful. Um, is the program strictly for college or could it be used for like a specialized education program? I'm thinking, you know, just using an example, maybe a child that has learning disabilities and needs to go to a special, you know, private school, for example, or is it, is it just college? At this point, uh, it's, and again, the, uh, the scholarship in itself is, is truly in its infancy in that we've only uh, had um, uh, one scholarship recipient thus far. But right now it is currently for folks that are enrolled or accepted into a accredited two- or four-year college, university, or vocational technical school. Uh, the, um, the guidelines behind that are, are, are fluid and, and, and open to uh, uh, suggestions and things like that. And I, I think as uh, you know, we find that there may be some specific needs out there and whether that's, uh, again, this, this family member or, or child that's um, got some unique needs that may or may not be directly tied to their uh, family members, you know, tragic loss or not. Uh, you know, we definitely will explore some of those opportunities. Sure. Um, Kevin touched upon the eligibility requirements, but could you sort of talk uh, about that? I mean, when uh, someone makes an application, what what are the types of things that are, are looked at? And is there a, a needs base to it as far as, um, you know, the income level? What we had uh, gone ahead and done is in terms of the criteria, uh, we've got an application that is online at the uh, medevacfoundation.org website, and it, it walks the um, uh, eligible candidates right through exactly what's needed and uh, Mm -hmm. the form itself is fairly straightforward. Uh, We do ask for uh, a transcript, again, whether that's a high school transcript or if they're already in college. Uh, Ask for a 300-word essay and really what we're looking there from a broad sense is uh, why do they feel like, you know, they should be chosen and it's fairly open in terms of, uh, uh, again, whether it is uh, that they feel that they are eligible based on financial need or, uh, you know, something specific to uh, the, the loss of their, uh, their family member. Uh, we also have a letter of recommendation that we request, as well as a uh, educator's uh, statement. And uh, those requirements, for the most part, go hand-in-hand hand with uh, most scholarships um, that are available out there for, uh, for individuals to apply for. Is, it lim- is there a limit on how many in, in a year? Or, and, and also, what is the amount 
of the um, grant? Well, a lot like the family grant fund, uh, you know, we do have a certain amount of uh, money in the fund right now. Mm-hmm. Ideally, this would be another example of where uh, having a large donation and creating an endowment uh, right. would be a wonderful opportunity uh, to where we, um, you know, would uh, you know be able to expand beyond what we've done. So far, we've awarded uh, one twenty-five hundred dollar uh, scholarship uh, in, in the fall of two thousand and nine. Uh, we do have the ability and the means if we have, um, you know, the quantity of, of and, and the quality of applicants uh, to actually award up to two $2,500 scholarships uh, on an annual basis. And so uh, our, our goal at this present time is, is to really, again, get the word out, a lot like the Family Grant Fund, that the scholarship uh, is available and reach out to maybe some of those uh, family members that have been affected and get some uh, applicants in by uh, the deadline. And if, if someone's applying, let's say it's their first year of college, um, is it 2500 for that degree or four-year time period, or can they apply each year? Uh, we, we really have no limitation in uh, how okay. often they can apply. Uh, and again, given that uh, we've only had um, you know, one award at this point, uh, and, and again, there has been a struggle, to be honest with you, uh, Ed, in terms of getting the word out yes. regarding the children's scholarship. Um, you know, We've come to realize at a foundation level that um, – you know, while there are literally hundreds of individuals uh, that have been, you know, killed in the line of duty in in the air medical transport community, oftentimes um, trying to uh, access, you know, family member names and uh, and and making them aware of it is difficult. So a lot like the Family Grant Fund, we're trying to take advantage of of utilizing the programs and the vendors yes. out there yeah. to make those families aware because uh, for the most part, I, I think most programs and vendors do keep in contact and communication with some of these families. And, and they're really uh, going to be instrumental in uh, helping communicate that this exists out there. Yeah, and that's, and the other thing is the children may have been very young at the time of the crash. So then you're talking, you know, several years later uh, that they would be eligible for this. So, um, Again, going into you know how hard it is to find people. So, absolutely, yeah. our first recipient actually, um, uh, his uh, uh, mother was killed in December of 2003 in a crash, and so it was you know six years after the fact. Um, you know he was uh, uh, just going from elementary school to to middle school at the time of his uh, mother's crash, and so uh, he uh, again is a pre med. Uh, major and um, in his second year of, of college. And so, um, you know, definitely a uh, um, great opportunity to be able to give to him. Mm-hmm. And then if someone does have the information, how soon before do they apply? You said the, the one student's already in school. I mean, does it matter? Is there a deadline that has to be done before, like classes begin in September, or can they apply once they're already in? Uh, again, if, if they've um, if they've got um, the, the ability to show that they are, are enrolled into a school, have been accepted into a school, uh, the deadline date for our application uh, is for June fifteenth. Uh, so June fifteenth of two thousand and ten will be the, uh, okay. the deadline for the mm-hmm. current scholarship. That allows us an opportunity to go ahead and, and review the scholarship applicants and notify the uh, recipient or recipients. Um, that they will be awarded uh, prior to the beginning of their semester, usually in the, the September timeframe. Okay. What's the switch on raising funds? Is this pretty much the same way as the family grant fund and in, in how you're approaching the, the raising and, and getting people to donate? 
Very similar. Uh, and, and again, we are trying to maximize uh, any and all uh, uh, means of communicating that out and take advantage of that AMTC, the spring conference, um, and other face-to-face -face venues. Uh, it seems like that um, at, at those type of venues, we have the, the best dialogue, uh, have a lot of interaction and questions with, with folks that uh, ultimately end up becoming donors. Uh, we are, again, working direct mail-wise with the programs uh, and the, the vendors out there. Uh, email is, 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 and social media are other options as well, but uh, almost identical in terms of the, the family grant fund, in terms of not only the awareness piece that it exists, but also uh, the need for the funding. Right. So any new things that you're looking at with, with this fund and getting the word out? or At this point, we're, we're very fortunate uh, with the foundation that uh, we've got a um, brand new development um, director that came on board in uh, the, uh, the fall of 2009. Uh, she has an extensive background in, in fundraising and working with foundations. And so uh, she has, is looking at some other opportunities and uh, helping the board as well as our committee kind of think outside of the box and some uh, means in terms of uh, uh, how we may be able to specifically raise funds for the Children's Scholarship and the Family Grant Fund, but also for the foundation as a whole. Yeah, uh, excellent. Well, Dustin, we're kind of getting close to the end. Is there anything else that you'd like to say either about the Family Grant Fund or the Children's Scholarship? I, again, I just would uh, you know, encourage folks uh, to, to go to the website, uh, medevacfoundation.org, mm -hmm. and uh, take a look. There's uh, some descriptors in there in terms of uh, both the Children's Scholarship and the Family Grant Fund. Um, also, does highlight some of the information on our first recipient of the Children's Scholarship and uh, tells a little bit about his story, which, uh, again, I think is uh, very telling of uh, you know the good work that the foundation's doing out there. Uh, encourage individuals that are listening that, uh, again, uh, consider donating to the foundation. Uh, doesn't have to necessarily be a large amount. Uh, ultimately, uh, we feel like we're successful if we, uh, you know, it's the quantity of donations versus the specific dollar amount that we raise because uh, it does help us realize that we are, um, again, uh, getting people out there to fully understand the good work of the foundation and uh, seeing that by their willingness and ability to give. It, and I was going to ask you, because I'll have the, the link in the show notes. Um, you said you were using some social media. Is there a specific sites that you have set up or are you just using existing ones? Uh, we uh, do have a Facebook uh, page uh, that is uh, uh, been active, and we continue to get members there. Uh, we do have some of our information in terms of uh, uh, the ability to donate and uh, information in there about the uh, the foundation as a whole. Uh, there have been some other uh, uh, comments and supports uh, for the foundation's efforts on other uh, Facebook-specific pages out there, including the uh, uh, Air Medical Memorial and uh, OmniFlight, as an example, uh, being affected by a loss within the last year has um, included some of our information um, on their uh, Facebook page as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I will list those on the show notes for people listening to the podcast. Appreciate that. Well, Dustin, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for all the work that you're doing uh, with both the Family Grant Fund and the Children's Scholarship Program. And, and I know you as a person don't want to take any personal credit, but uh, I know that um, because of your involvement uh, and your leadership, it's been invaluable to both of these programs. 
Well, thank you, Ed, and it's truly been an honor to work with uh, those individuals that have been able to help um, make the Family Grant Fund and the Children's Scholarship actually come to be and, and identify those needs. Uh, and truly, uh, we've we've gotten more out of them than we've uh, you know been able to give to them over the years. Yeah, it's uh, been truly a labor of love for you. Absolutely. Well, take care. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Take care and fly safe.